Listening Library presents The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak. Read for you by Alan Cordula. Prologue A mountain range of rubble in which our narrator introduces himself, the colors, and the book thief. Death and Chocolate First the colors, then the humans. That's usually how I see things, or at least how I try. Here is a small fact. You are going to die. I am in all truthfulness attempting to be cheerful about this whole topic, though most people find themselves hindered in believing me, no matter my protestations. Please trust me, I most definitely can be cheerful. I can be amiable, agreeable, affable, and that's only the A's. Just don't ask me to be nice. Nice has nothing to do with me. Reaction to the aforementioned fact. Does this worry you? I urge you, don't be afraid. I'm nothing if not fair. Of course, an introduction, a beginning. Where are my manners? I could introduce myself properly, but it's not really necessary. You will know me well enough and soon enough, depending on a diverse range of variables. It suffices to say that at some point in time, I will be standing over you as genially as possible. Your soul will be in my arms. A color will be perched on my shoulder. I will carry you gently away. At that moment, you will be lying there. I rarely find people standing up. You will be caked in your own body. There might be a discovery. A scream will dribble down the air. The only sound I'll hear after that will be my own breathing and the sound of the smell of my footsteps. The question is, what color will everything be at that moment when I come for you? What will the sky be saying? Personally, I like a chocolate-colored sky. Dark, dark chocolate. People say it suits me. I do, however, try to enjoy every color I see. The whole spectrum. A billion or so flavors, none of them quite the same, and a sky to slowly suck on. It takes the edge off the stress. It helps me relax. A small theory. People observe the colors of a day only at its beginnings and ends. But to me, it's quite clear that a day merges through a multitude of shades and intonations with each passing moment. A single hour can consist of thousands of different colors. Waxy yellows, cloud-spat blues, murky darknesses. In my line of work, I make it a point to notice them. As I've been alluding to, my one saving grace is distraction. It keeps me sane. It helps me cope, considering the length of time I've been performing this job. The trouble is, who could ever replace me? Who could step in while I take a break in your stock-standard resort-style vacation destination, whether it be tropical or of the ski-trip variety? The answer, of course, is nobody, which has prompted me to make a conscious, deliberate decision. 
to make distraction my vacation. Needless to say, I vacation in increments, in colors. Still, it's possible that you might be asking, why does he even need a vacation? What does he need distraction from? Which brings me to my next point. It's the leftover humans, the survivors. They're the ones I can't stand to look at, although on many occasions I still fail. I deliberately seek out the colors to keep my mind off them, but now and then I witness the ones who are left behind, crumbling among the jigsaw puzzle of realization, despair, and surprise. They have punctured hearts. They have beaten lungs. Which, in turn, brings me to the subject I am telling you about tonight, or today, or whatever the hour and color. It's the story of one of those perpetual survivors, an expert at being left behind. It's just a small story, really, about, among other things, a girl, some words, an accordionist, some fanatical Germans, a Jewish fistfighter, and quite a lot of thievery. I saw the book thief three times. Beside the railway line. First up is something white, of the blinding kind. Some of you are most likely thinking that white is not really a color and all of that tired sort of nonsense. Well, I'm here to tell you that it is. White is without question a color, and personally, I don't think you want to argue with me. A reassuring announcement. Please, be calm, despite that previous threat. I am all bluster. I am not violent. I am not malicious. I am a result. Yes, it was white. It felt as though the whole globe was dressed in snow, like it had pulled it on, the way you pull on a sweater. Next to the train line, footprints were sunken to their shins. Trees wore blankets of ice. As you might expect, someone had died. They couldn't just leave him on the ground. For now it wasn't such a problem, but very soon the track ahead would be cleared and the train would need to move on. There were two guards. There was one mother and her daughter, one corpse. The mother, the girl, and the corpse remained stubborn and silent. Well, what else do you want me to do? The guards were tall and short. The tall one always spoke first, though he was not in charge. He looked at the smaller, rounder one, the one with the juicy red face. Well, was the response, we can't just leave them like this, can we? The tall one was losing patience. Why not? And the smaller one damn near exploded. He looked up at the tall one's chin and cried, Spinst du? Are you stupid? The abhorrence on his cheeks was growing thicker by the moment. His skin widened. Come on, he said, traipsing over the snow. We'll carry all three of them back on if we have to. We'll notify the next stop. As for me, I had already made the most elementary of mistakes. I can't explain to you the severity of my self-disappointment. Originally, I'd done everything right. I studied the blinding white snow sky who stood at the window of the moving train. I practically inhaled it, but still I wavered. I buckled. I became interested in the girl. Curiosity got the better of me, and I resigned myself to stay as long as my schedule allowed, and I watched. Twenty-three minutes later, when the train was stopped, I climbed out with them. 
A small soul was in my arms. I stood a little to the right. The dynamic train guard duo made their way back to the mother, the girl, and the small male corpse. I clearly remember that my breath was loud that day. I'm surprised the guards didn't notice me as they walked by. The world was sagging now under the weight of all that snow. Perhaps ten meters to my left, the pale, empty-stomached girl was standing, frost-stricken. Her mouth jittered, her cold arms were folded. Tears were frozen to the book thief's face. The Eclipse Next is a signature black, to show the pearls of my versatility, if you like. It was the darkest moment before the dawn. This time, I had come for a man of perhaps twenty-four years of age. It was a beautiful thing in some ways. The plane was still coughing, smoke was leaking from both its lungs. When it crashed, three deep gashes were made in the earth. Its wings were now sawn-off arms. No more flapping, not for this metallic little bird. Some other small facts. Sometimes I arrive too early. I rush and some people cling longer to life than expected. After a small collection of minutes, the smoke exhausted itself. There was nothing left to give. A boy arrived first, with cluttered breath and what appeared to be a toolbox. With great trepidation, he approached the cockpit and watched the pilot, gauging if he was alive, at which point he still was. The book thief arrived perhaps thirty seconds later. Years had passed, but I recognized her. She was panting. From the toolbox, the boy took out, of all things, a teddy bear. He reached in through the torn windshield and placed it on the pilot's chest. The smiling bear sat huddled among the crowded wreckage of the man and the blood. A few minutes later, I took my chance. The time was right. I walked in, loosened his soul, and carried it gently away. All that was left was the body, the dwindling smell of smoke, and the smiling teddy bear. As the crowd arrived in full, things of course had changed. The horizon was beginning to charcoal. What was left of the blackness above was nothing now but a scribble, and disappearing fast. The man, in comparison, was the color of bone, Skeleton-coloured skin, a ruffled uniform, his eyes were cold and brown, like coffee stains, and the last scrawl from above formed what, to me, appeared an odd yet familiar shape. A signature. The crowd did what crowds do. As I made my way through, each person stood and played with the quietness of it. It was a small concoction of disjointed hand movements, muffled sentences and mute, self-conscious turns. When I glanced back at the plane, the pilot's open mouth appeared to be smiling. A final dirty joke. Another human punchline. He remained shrouded in his uniform as the greying light arm-wrestled the sky. As with many of the others when I began my journey away, there seemed a quick shadow again, a final moment of eclipse, the recognition of another soul gone. You see, to me, for just a moment, despite all of the colours that touch and grapple with what I see in this world, I will often catch an eclipse when a human dies. 
I've seen millions of them. I've seen more eclipses than I care to remember. The Flag The last time I saw her was red. The sky was like soup, boiling and stirring. In some places it was burned. There were black crumbs and pepper streaked across the redness. Earlier, kids had been playing hopscotch there, on the street that looked like oil-stained pages. When I arrived, I could still hear the echoes, the feet tapping the road, the children, voices laughing, and the smiles like salt but decaying fast. Then, bombs. This time, everything was too late. The sirens, the cuckoo shrieks in the radio, all too late. Within minutes, mounds of concrete and earth were stacked and piled. The streets were ruptured veins. Blood streamed till it was dried on the road, and the bodies were stuck there like driftwood after the flood. They were glued down, every last one of them. A packet of souls. Was it fate? Misfortune? Is that what glued them down like that? Of course not. Let's not be stupid. It probably had more to do with the hurled bombs thrown down by humans hiding in the clouds. Yes, the sky was now a devastating home-cooked red. The small German town had been flung apart one more time. Snowflakes of ash fell so lovelily you were tempted to stretch out your tongue to catch them, taste them. Only they would have scorched your lips. They would have cooked your mouth. Clearly I see it. I was just about to leave when I found her kneeling there. A mountain range of rubble was written, designed, erected around her. She was clutching at a book. Apart from everything else, the book thief wanted desperately to go back to the basement to write or to read through her story one last time. In hindsight, I see it so obviously on her face. She was dying for it, the safety of it, the home of it, but she could not move. Also, the basement didn't even exist anymore. It was part of the mangled landscape. Please, again, I ask you to believe me. I wanted to stop, to crouch down. I wanted to say, I'm sorry, child. But that is not allowed. I did not crouch down. I did not speak. Instead, I watched her a while. When she was able to move, I followed her. She dropped the book. She knelt. The book thief howled. Her book was stepped on several times as the clean-up began, and although orders were given only to clear the mess of concrete, the girl's most precious item was thrown aboard a garbage truck, at which point I was compelled. I climbed aboard and took it in my hand, not realizing that I would keep it and view it several thousand times over the years. I would watch the places where we intersect and marvel at what the girl saw and how she survived. That is the best I can do. Watch it fall into line with everything else I spectated during that time. When I recollect her, I see a long list of colors, but it's the three in which I saw her in the flesh that resonate the most. Sometimes I manage to float far above those three moments. I hang suspended until a septic truth bleeds toward clarity. That's when I see them formulate, or more to the point, fall on top of each other, the swastika black onto the blinding global white, onto the thick, soupy red. 
Yes, often I am reminded of her. And in one of my vast array of pockets, I have kept her story to retell. It is one of the small legion I carry, each one extraordinary in its own right, each one an attempt, an immense leap of an attempt, to prove to me that you and your human existence are worth it. Here it is, one of a handful, the book thief. If you feel like it, come with me. I will tell you a story. I'll show you something. Part One The Gravedigger's Handbook Featuring Himmel Street, The Art of Zaumenching, An Iron-Fisted Woman, A Kiss Attempt, Jesse Owens, Sandpaper, The Smell of Friendship, A Heavyweight Champion, and The Mother of All Vutchens. Arrival on Himmel Street That last time, that red sky... How does a book thief end up kneeling and howling and flanked by a man-made heap of ridiculous, greasy, cooked-up rubble? Years earlier, the start was snow. The time had come, for one. A spectacularly tragic moment. A train was moving quickly. It was packed with humans. A six-year-old boy died in the third carriage. The book thief and her brother were travelling down toward Munich, where they would soon be given over to foster parents. We now know, of course, that the boy didn't make it. How it happened? There was an intense spurt of coughing, almost an inspired spurt, and soon after, nothing. When the coughing stopped, there was nothing but the nothingness of life moving on with a shuffle or a near-silent twitch. A suddenness found its way onto his lips then, which were a corroded brown colour and peeling like old paint, in desperate need of redoing. Their mother was asleep. I entered the train. My feet stepped through the cluttered aisle, and my palm was over his mouth in an instant. No one noticed. The train galloped on. Except the girl. With one eye open, one still in a dream, the book thief also known as Liesel Memminger, could see without question that her younger brother Werner was now sideways and dead. His blue eyes stared at the floor, seeing nothing. Prior to waking up, the book thief was dreaming about the Führer, Adolf Hitler. In the dream, she was attending a rally at which he spoke, looking at the skull-coloured part in his hair and the perfect square of his moustache. She was listening contentedly to the torrent of words spilling from his mouth. His sentences glowed in the light. In a quieter moment, he actually crouched down and smiled at her. She returned the smile and said, Guten Tag, Herr Führer. Wie geht's dir heute? She hadn't learned to speak too well or even to read, as she had rarely frequented school. The reason for that she would find out in due course. Just as the Führer was about to reply, she woke up. It was January 1939. She was nine years old, soon to be ten. Her brother was dead. One eye open, one still in a dream. It would be better for a complete dream, I think, but I really have no control over that. 
The second eye jumped awake, and she caught me out, no doubt about it. It was exactly when I knelt down and extracted his soul, holding it limply in my swollen arms. He warmed up soon after, but when I picked him up originally, the boy's spirit was soft and cold, like ice cream. He started melting in my arms, then warming up completely, healing. For Liesel Memminger, there was the imprisoned stiffness of movement and the staggered onslaught of thoughts. Es stimmt nicht. This isn't happening. This isn't happening. And the shaking. Why do they always shake them? Yes, I know, I know. I assume it has something to do with instinct, to stem the flow of truth. Her heart at that point was slippery and hot and loud, so loud, so loud. Stupidly, I stayed. I watched. Next, her mother. She woke her up with the same distraught shake. If you can't imagine it, think clumsy silence. Think bits and pieces of floating despair and drowning in a train. Snow had been falling consistently, and the service to Munich was forced to stop due to faulty track work. There was a woman wailing. A girl stood numbly next to her. In panic, the mother opened the door. She climbed down into the snow, holding the small body. What could the girl do but follow? As you've been informed, two guards also exited the train. They discussed and argued over what to do. The situation was unsavory, to say the least. It was eventually decided that all three of them should be taken to the next township and left there to sort things out. This time, the train limped through the snowed-in country. It hobbled in and stopped. They stepped onto the platform, the body in her mother's arms. They stood. The boy was getting heavy. Liesel had no idea where she was. All was white, and as they remained at the station, she could only stare at the faded lettering of the sign in front of her. For Liesel, the town was nameless, and it was there that her brother Werner was buried two days later. Witnesses included a priest and two shivering gravediggers. An observation. A pair of train guards, a pair of gravediggers. When it came down to it, one of them called the shots. The other did what he was told. The question is, what of the other is a lot more than one? Mistakes, mistakes, it's all I seem capable of at times. For two days I went about my business. I travelled the globe, as always, handing souls to the conveyor belt of eternity. I watched them trundle passively on. Several times I warned myself that I should keep a good distance from the burial of Liesel Memminger's brother. I did not heed my advice. From miles away, as I approached, I could already see the small group of humans standing frigidly among the wasteland of snow. The cemetery welcomed me like a friend, and soon I was with them. I bowed my head. Standing to Liesel's left, the gravediggers were rubbing their hands together and whining about the snow and the current digging conditions, so hard getting through all the ice, and so forth. One of them couldn't have been more than fourteen, an apprentice. When he walked away after a few dozen paces, a black book fell innocuously from his coat pocket 
without his knowledge. A few minutes later, Liesel's mother started leaving with the priest. She was thanking him for his performance of the ceremony. The girl, however, stayed. Her knees entered the ground. Her moment had arrived. Still in disbelief, she started to dig. He couldn't be dead. He couldn't be dead. He couldn't... Within seconds, snow was carved into her skin. Frozen blood was cracked across her hands. Somewhere in all the snow, she could see her broken heart in two pieces. Each half was glowing and beating under all that white. She realized her mother had come back for her only when she felt the boniness of a hand on her shoulder. She was being dragged away. A warm scream filled her throat. A small image, perhaps twenty meters away. When the dragging was done, the mother and the girl stood and breathed. There was something black and rectangular lodged in the snow. Only the girl saw it. She bent down and picked it up and held it firmly in her fingers. The book had silver writing on it. They held hands. A final soaking farewell was let go of, and they turned and left the cemetery, looking back several times. As for me, I remained a few moments longer. I waved. No one waved back. Mother and daughter vacated the cemetery and made their way toward the next train to Munich. Both were skinny and pale. Both had sores on their lips. Liesel noticed it in the dirty, fogged-up window of the train when they boarded just before midday. In the written words of the book thief herself, the journey continued like everything had happened. When the train pulled into the Bahnhof in Munich, the passengers slid out as if from a torn package. There were people of every stature, but among them, the poor were the most easily recognized. The impoverished always try to keep moving, as if relocating might help. They ignore the reality that a new version of the same old problem will be waiting at the end of the trip, the relative you cringe to kiss. I think her mother knew this quite well. She wasn't delivering her children to the higher echelons of Munich, but a foster home had apparently been found, and if nothing else, the new family could at least feed the girl and the boy a little better and educate them properly. The boy. Liesel was sure her mother carried the memory of him slung over her shoulder. She dropped him. She saw his feet and legs and body slap the platform. How could that woman walk? How could she move? That's the sort of thing I'll never know or comprehend. What humans are capable of. She picked him up and continued walking, the girl clinging now to her side. Authorities were met, and questions of lateness and the boy raised their vulnerable heads. Liesel remained in the corner of the small, dusty office as her mother sat with clenched thoughts on a very hard chair. There was the chaos of goodbye. It was a goodbye that was wet, with the girl's head buried into the woolly, worn shallows of her mother's coat. There had been some more dragging. Quite a way beyond the outskirts of Munich, there was a town called Molching, said best by the likes of you and me as Molking. That's where they were taking her, to a street by the name of Himmel. A translation. Himmel equals heaven.
Whoever named Himmel Street certainly had a healthy sense of irony. Not that it was a living hell, it wasn't, but it sure as hell wasn't heaven either. Regardless, Liesel's foster parents were waiting. The Hubermans. They'd been expecting a girl and a boy, and would be paid a small allowance for having them. Nobody wanted to be the one to tell Rosa Huberman that the boy didn't survive the trip. In fact, no one ever really wanted to tell her anything. As far as dispositions go, hers wasn't really enviable, although she had a good record with foster kids in the past. Apparently, she'd straightened a few out. For Liesel, it was a ride in a car. She'd never been in one before. There was the constant rise and fall of her stomach, and the futile hopes that they'd lose their way or change their minds. Among it all, her thoughts couldn't help turning toward her mother, back at the Bahnhof, waiting to leave again, shivering, bundled up in that useless coat. She'd be eating her nails, waiting for the train. The platform would be long and uncomfortable, a slice of cold cement. Would she keep an eye out for the approximate burial site of her son on the return trip? Or would sleep be too heavy? The car moved on, with Liesel dreading the last lethal turn. The day was grey, the colour of Europe. Curtains of rain were drawn around the car. Nearly there, the foster care lady Frau Heinrich turned around and smiled. Dein neues Heim, your new home. Liesel made a clear circle on the dribbled glass and looked out. A photo of Himmel Street. The buildings appear to be glued together, mostly small houses and apartment blocks that look nervous. There is murky snow spread out like carpet. There is concrete, empty hatstand trees and grey air. A man was also in the car. He remained with the girl while Frau Heinrich disappeared inside. He never spoke. Liesel assumed he was there to make sure she wouldn't run away or to force her inside if she gave them any trouble. Later, however, when the trouble did start, he simply sat there and watched. Perhaps he was only the last resort, the final solution. After a few minutes, a very tall man came out, Hans Huberman, Liesel's foster father. On one side of him was the medium-height Frau Heinrich. On the other was the squat shape of Rosa Huberman, who looked like a small wardrobe with a coat thrown over it. There was a distinct waddle to her walk, almost cute if it wasn't for her face, which was like creased-up cardboard and annoyed as if she was merely tolerating all of it. Her husband walked straight, with a cigarette smouldering between his fingers, he rolled his own. The fact was this. Liesel would not get out of the car. Was ist los mit dem Kind? Rosa Huberman inquired. She said it again. What's wrong with this child? She stuck her face inside the car and said, Na komm, komm. The seat in front was flung forward. A corridor of cold light invited her out. She would not move. Outside, through the circle she'd made, Liesel could see the tall man's fingers, still holding the cigarette. Ash stumbled from its edge and lunged and lifted several times until it hit the ground. It took nearly fifteen minutes to coax her from the car. It was the tall man who did it. 
quietly. There was the gate next, which she clung to. A gang of tears trudged from her eyes as she held on and refused to go inside. People started to gather on the street until Rosa Huberman swore at them, after which they reversed back whence they came. A translation of Rosa Huberman's announcement. What are you assholes looking at? Eventually, Liesel Memminger walked gingerly inside. Hans Huberman had her by one hand, her small suitcase had her by the other. Buried beneath the folded layer of clothes in that suitcase was a small black book, which for all we know, a fourteen-year-old gravedigger in a nameless town had probably spent the last few hours looking for. I promise you, I imagine him saying to his boss, I have no idea what happened to it. I've looked everywhere, everywhere. I'm sure he would never have suspected the girl, and yet there it was, a black book with silver words written against the ceiling of her clothes. The Gravedigger's Handbook, a twelve-step guide to gravedigging success, published by the Bayern Cemetery Association. The book thief had struck for the first time, the beginning of an illustrious career. Growing up as Zalmensch. Yes, an illustrious career. I should hasten to admit, however, that there was a considerable hiatus between the first stolen book and the second. Another noteworthy point is that the first was stolen from snow and the second from fire, not to omit that others were also given to her. All told, she owned fourteen books, but she saw her story as being made up predominantly of ten of them. Of those ten, six were stolen, one showed up at the kitchen table, two were made for her by a hidden Jew, and one was delivered by a soft, yellow-dressed afternoon. When she came to write her story, she would wonder exactly when the books and the words started to mean not just something, but everything. Was it when she first set eyes on the room with shelves and shelves of them? Or when Max Vandenberg arrived on Himmel Street carrying handfuls of suffering and Hitler's Mein Kampf? Was it reading in the shelters, the last parade to Dachau? Was it the word shaker? Perhaps there would never be a precise answer as to when and where it occurred. In any case, that's getting ahead of myself. Before we make it to any of that, we first need to tour Liesel Memminger's beginnings on Himmel Street and the art of Zalmenching. Upon her arrival, you could still see the bite marks of snow on her hands and the frosty blood on her fingers. Everything about her was undernourished. Wire-like shins, coat-hanger arms. She did not produce it easily, but when it came, she had a starving smile. Her hair was a close enough brand of German blonde, but she had dangerous eyes. Dark brown, you didn't really want brown eyes in Germany around that time. Perhaps she received them from her father, but she had no way of knowing as she couldn't remember him. There was really only one thing she knew about her father. It was a label she did not understand. A strange word. Communist. She'd heard it several times in the past few years. Communist. There were boarding houses crammed with people, Rooms filled with questions, and that word, that strange word, was always there somewhere, standing in the corner, watching from the dark. It wore suits, 
uniforms. No matter where they went, there it was, each time her father was mentioned. She could smell it and taste it. She just couldn't spell or understand it. When she asked her mother what it meant, she was told that it wasn't important, that she shouldn't worry about such things. At one boarding house, there was a healthier woman who tried to teach the children to write, using charcoal on the wall. Liesel was tempted to ask her the meaning, but it never eventuated. One day, that woman was taken away for questioning. She didn't come back. When Liesel arrived in Molking, she had at least some inkling that she was being saved, but that was not a comfort. If her mother loved her, why leave her on someone else's doorstep? Why? 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 The fact that she knew the answer, if only at the most basic level, seemed beside the point. Her mother was constantly sick, and there was never any money to fix her. Liesel knew that. But that didn't mean she had to accept it. No matter how many times she was told that she was loved, there was no recognition that the proof was in the abandonment. Nothing changed the fact that she was a lost, skinny child in another foreign place, with more foreign people. Alone. The Hubermans lived in one of the small, box-like houses on Himmel Street. A few rooms, a kitchen, and a shared outhouse with neighbours. The roof was flat, and there was a shallow basement for storage. It was supposedly not a basement of adequate depth. In 1939, this wasn't a problem. Later, in 42 and 43, it was. When air raids started, they always needed to rush down the street to a better shelter. In the beginning, it was the profanity that made an immediate impact. It was so vehement and prolific. Every second word was either Zaumensch or Zaukel or Arschloch. For people who aren't familiar with these words, I should explain. Zau, of course, refers to pigs. In the case of Zaumensch, it serves to castigate, berate, or plain humiliate a female. Zaukel is for a male. Arschloch can be translated directly into arsehole. That word, however, does not differentiate between the sexes. It simply is. Zaumensch, du dreckiges! Liesel's foster mother shouted that first evening when she refused to have a bath. You filthy pig! Why won't you get undressed? She was good at being furious. In fact, you could say that Rosa Huberman had a face decorated with constant fury. That was how the creases were made in the cardboard texture of her complexion. Liesel, naturally, was bathed in anxiety. There was no way she was getting into any bath, or into bed for that matter. She was twisted into one corner of the closet-like washroom, clutching for the non-existent arms of the wall for some level of support. There was nothing but dry paint, difficult breath, and the deluge of abuse from Rosa. Leave her alone. Hans Huberman entered the fray. His gentle voice made its way in, as if slipping through a crowd. Leave her to me. He moved closer and sat on the floor against the wall. The tiles were cold and unkind. You know how to roll a cigarette? he asked her. And for the next hour or so, they sat in the rising pool of darkness, playing with the tobacco and the cigarette papers, and Hans Huberman smoking them. When the hour was up, Liesel could roll a cigarette moderately well. She still didn't have a bath. Some facts about Hans Huberman. He loved to smoke, 
The main thing he enjoyed about smoking was the rolling. He was a painter by trade and played the piano accordion. This came in handy, especially in winter, when he could make a little money playing in the pubs of Malking, like the Knoller. He had already cheated me in one world war, but would later be put into another, as a perverse kind of reward, where he would somehow manage to avoid me again. To most people, Hans Huberman was barely visible, an unspecial person. Certainly his painting skills were excellent, his musical ability was better than average. Somehow, though, and I'm sure you've met people like this, he was able to appear as merely part of the background, even if he was standing at the front of a line. He was always just there, not noticeable, not important or particularly valuable. The frustration of that appearance, as you can imagine, was its complete misleadance, let's say. There most definitely was value in him, and it did not go unnoticed by Liesel Memminger. The human child, so much cannier at times than the stupefyingly ponderous adult. She saw it immediately. His manner, the quiet air around him. When he turned the light on in the small callous washroom that night, Liesel observed the strangeness of her foster father's eyes. They were made of kindness and silver, like soft silver, melting. Liesel, upon seeing those eyes, understood that Hans Huberman was worth a lot. Some facts about Rosa Huberman. She was five feet one inch tall and wore her brownie-gray strands of elastic hair in a bun. To supplement the Huberman income, she did the washing and ironing for five of the wealthier households in Malking. Her cooking was atrocious. She possessed the unique ability to aggravate almost anyone she ever met. But she did love Liesel Memminger. Her way of showing it just happened to be strange. It involved bashing her with wooden spoon and words at various intervals. When Liesel finally had a bath... After two weeks of living on Himmel Street, Rosa gave her an enormous injury-inducing hug, nearly choking her. She said, Zaumensch, du dreckiges! It's about time! After a few months, they were no longer Mr. and Mrs. Huberman. With a typical fistful of words, Rosa said, Now listen, Liesel, from now on you call me Mama. She thought a moment. What did you call your real mother? Liesel answered quietly. Auch Mama, also Mama. Well, I'm Mama number two, then. She looked over at her husband, and him over there. She seemed to collect the words in her hand, pat them together, and hurl them across the table. That Zaukerl, that filthy pig. You call him Papa, verstehst? Understand? Yes, Liesel promptly agreed. Quick answers were appreciated in this household. Yes, Mama. Mama corrected her. Zaumensch, call me Mama when you talk to me. At that moment, Hans Huberman had just completed rolling a cigarette, having licked the paper and joined it all up. He looked over at Liesel and winked. She would have no trouble calling him Papa. The Woman with the Iron Fist Those first few months were definitely the hardest. Every night... Liesel would nightmare. Her brother's face, staring at the floor. 
She would wake up swimming in her bed, screaming and drowning in the flood of sheets. On the other side of the room, the bed that was meant for her brother floated boat-like in the darkness. Slowly, with the arrival of consciousness, it sank seemingly into the floor. This vision didn't help matters, and it would usually be quite a while before the screaming stopped. Possibly the only good to come out of these nightmares was that it brought Hans Huberman, her new papa, into the room to soothe her, to love her. He came in every night and sat with her. The first couple of times, he simply stayed, a stranger to kill the aloneness. A few nights after that, he whispered, Shh, I'm here, it's all right. After three weeks, he held her. Trust was accumulated quickly, due primarily to the brute strength of the man's gentleness, his thereness. The girl knew from the outset that Hans Huberman would always appear mid-scream, and he would not leave. A definition not found in the dictionary. Not leaving. An act of trust and love, often deciphered by children. Hans Huberman sat sleepy-eyed on the bed, and Liesel would cry into his sleeves and breathe him in. Every morning, just after two o'clock, she fell asleep again to the smell of him. It was a mixture of dead cigarettes, decades of paint, and human skin. At first, she sucked it all in, then breathed it until she drifted back down. Each morning, he was a few feet away from her, crumpled, almost halved in the chair. He never used the other bed. Liesel would climb out and cautiously kiss his cheek, and he would wake up and smile. Some days, Papa told her to get back into bed and wait a minute, and he would return with his accordion and play for her. Liesel would sit up and hum, her cold toes clenched with excitement. No one had ever given her music before. She would grin herself stupid, watching the lines drawing themselves down his face and the soft metal of his eyes, until the swearing arrived from the kitchen. Stop that noise, Zaukel! Papa would play a little longer. He would wink at the girl, and clumsily, she'd wink back. A few times, purely to incense Mama a little further, he also brought the instrument to the kitchen and played through breakfast. Papa's bread and jam would be half-eaten on his plate, curled into the shape of bite marks, and the music would look Liesel in the face. I know it sounds strange, but that's how it felt to her. Papa's right hand strolled the tooth-colored keys. His left hit the buttons. She especially loved to see him hit the silver, sparkled button, the C major. The accordion's scratched yet shiny black exterior came back and forth as his arm squeezed the dusty bellows, making it suck in the air and throw it back out. In the kitchen on those mornings, Papa made the accordion live. I guess it makes sense when you really think about it. How do you tell if something's alive? You check for breathing. The sound of the accordion was in fact also the announcement of safety, daylight. During the day, it was impossible to dream of her brother. She would miss him and frequently cry in the tiny washroom as quietly as possible, but she was still glad to be awake. On her first night with the Hubermans, she had hidden her last link to him, the gravedigger's handbook, under her mattress, and occasionally she would pull it out 
and hold it. Staring at the letters on the cover and touching the print inside, she had no idea what any of it was saying. The point is, it didn't really matter what that book was about. It was what it meant that was more important. The book's meaning? One, the last time she saw her brother. Two, the last time she saw her mother. Sometimes she would whisper the word mama and see her mother's face a hundred times in a single afternoon. But those were small miseries compared to the terror of her dreams. At those times, in the enormous mileage of sleep, she had never felt so completely alone. As I'm sure you've already noticed, there were no other children in the house. The Hubermans had two of their own, but they were older and had moved out. Hans Jr. worked in the centre of Munich, and Trudy held a job as a housemaid and childminder. Soon, they would both be in the war. One would be making bullets. The other would be shooting them. School, as you might imagine, was a terrific failure. Although it was state-run, there was a heavy Catholic influence, and Liesel was Lutheran, not the most auspicious start. Then they discovered she couldn't read or write. Humiliatingly, she was cast down with the younger kids, who were only just learning the alphabet. Even though she was thin-boned and pale, she felt gigantic among the midget children, and she often wished she was pale enough to disappear altogether. Even at home, there wasn't much room for guidance. Don't ask him for help, Mama pointed out. That's Zauker. Papa was staring out the window, as was often his habit. He left school in fourth grade. Without turning around, Papa answered calmly, but with venom. Well, don't ask her either. He dropped some ash outside. She left school in third grade. There were no books in the house apart from the one she had secreted under her mattress, and the best Liesel could do was speak the alphabet under her breath before she was told in no uncertain terms to keep quiet, all that mumbling. It wasn't until later, when there was a bedwetting incident mid-nightmare, that an extra reading education began. Unofficially, it was called the midnight class, even though it usually commenced at around two in the morning. More of that soon. In mid-February, when she turned ten, Liesel was given a used doll that had a missing leg and yellow hair. It was the best we could do, Papa apologized. What are you talking about? She's lucky to have that much, Mama corrected him. Hans continued his examination of the remaining leg, while Liesel tried on her new uniform. Ten years old meant Hitler Youth. Hitler Youth meant a small brown uniform. Being female... Liesel was enrolled into what was called the BDM. Explanation of the abbreviation. It stood for Bund Deutsche Mädchen, Band of German Girls. The first thing they did there was to make sure your Heil Hitler was working properly. Then you were taught to march straight, roll bandages, and sew up clothes. You were also taken hiking and on other such activities, Wednesday and Saturday were the designated meeting days, from three in the afternoon until five. Each Wednesday and Saturday, Papa would walk Liesel there and pick her up two hours later. They never spoke about it much. They just held hands and listened to their feet, and Papa had a cigarette or two. The only anxiety Papa brought her was the fact that he was constantly leaving. 
Many evenings he would walk into the living room, which doubled as the Huberman's bedroom, pull the accordion from the old cupboard, and squeeze past in the kitchen to the front door. As he walked up Himmel Street, Mama would open the window and cry out, Don't be home too late! Not so loud, he would turn and call back. Zaukel, lick my ass! I'll speak as loud as I want! The echo of her swearing followed him up the street. He never looked back, or at least not until he was sure his wife was gone. On those evenings, at the end of the street, accordion case in hand, he would turn around just before Frau Diller's corner shop and see the figure who had replaced his wife in the window. Briefly, his long ghostly hand would rise before he turned again and walked slowly on. The next time Liesel saw him would be at two in the morning when he dragged her gently from her nightmare. Evenings in the small kitchen were raucous without fail. Rosa Huberman was always talking, and when she was talking, it took the form of Schimpfen. She was constantly arguing and complaining. There was no one to really argue with, but Mama managed it expertly every chance she had. She could argue with the entire world in that kitchen, and almost every evening she did. Once they had eaten and Papa was gone, Liesel and Rosa would usually remain there, and Rosa would do the ironing. A few times a week, Liesel would come home from school and walk the streets of Molking with her mama, picking up and delivering washing and ironing from the wealthier parts of town. Knauptstrasse, Heiderstrasse, a few others. Mama would deliver the ironing or pick up the washing with a dutiful smile, but as soon as the door was shut and she walked away, she would curse these rich people with all their money and laziness. Too gestinkert to wash their own clothes, she would say, despite her dependence on them. Him, she accused Herr Vogel from Heiderstrasse, made all his money from his father. He throws it away on women and drink. And washing and ironing, of course. It was like a roll call of scorn. Herr Vogel, Herr and Frau Pfaffelhöver, Helena Schmidt, the Weingartners, they were all guilty of something. Apart from his drunkenness and expensive lechery, Ernst Vogel, according to Rosa, was constantly scratching his louse-ridden hair, licking his fingers, and then handing over the money. I should wash it before I come home, was her summation. The Pfaffelhöver scrutinized the results. Not one crease in these shirts, please, Rosa imitated them. Not one wrinkle in this suit, and then they stand there and inspect it all right in front of me, right under my nose. What a gazinda! What trash! The Weingartners were apparently stupid people, with a constantly molting Zaumensch of a cat. Do you know how long it takes me to get rid of all that fur? It's everywhere. Helena Schmidt was a rich widow. That old cripple, sitting there just wasting away. She's never had to do a day's work in all her life. Rosa's greatest disdain, however, was reserved for Eight Grandestrasse, a large house high on a hill in the upper part of Molking. This one, she'd pointed out to Liesel the first time they went there, is the mayor's house. That crook, his wife sits at home all day, too mean to light a fire. It's always freezing in there. She's crazy. She punctuated the words, absolutely crazy. At the gate, she motioned to the girl. You go. 
Liesel was horrified. A giant brown door with a brass knocker stood atop a small flight of steps. What? Mama shoved her. Don't you want me, Zaumensch? Move it! Liesel moved it. She walked the path, climbed the steps, hesitated, and knocked. A bathrobe answered the door. Inside it, a woman with startled eyes, hair like fluff, and the posture of defeat stood in front of her. She saw Mama at the gate and handed the girl a bag of washing. Thank you, Liesel said, but there was no reply, only the door. It closed. You see, said Mama when she returned to the gate, this is what I have to put up with, these rich bastards, these lazy swine. Holding the washing as they walked away, Liesel looked back. The brass knocker eyed her from the door. When she finished berating the people she worked for, Rosa Huberman would usually move on to her other favorite theme of abuse, her husband. Looking at the bag of washing and the hunched houses, she would talk and talk and talk. If your papa was any good, she informed Liesel every time they walked through Mulking, I wouldn't have to do this. She sniffed with derision. A painter. <laughs> Why marry that arschloch? That's what they told me. My family, that is. Their footsteps crunched along the path, and here I am, walking the streets and slaving in my kitchen because that Zaukerl never has any work. No real work, anyway, just that pathetic accordion in those dirt holes every night. Yes, Mama. Is that all you've got to say? Mama's eyes were like pale blue cutouts pasted to her face. They'd walk on, with Liesel carrying the sack. At home, it was washed in a boiler next to the stove, hung up by the fireplace in the living room, and then ironed in the kitchen. The kitchen was where the action was. Did you hear that? Mama asked her nearly every night. The iron was in her fist, heated from the stove. Light was dull all through the house, and Liesel, sitting at the kitchen table, would be staring at the gaps of fire in front of her. What? she'd reply. What is it? That was Holzapfel. Mama was already out of her seat. That Zaumensch just spat on our door again. It was a tradition for Frau Holzapfel, one of their neighbors, to spit on the Huberman's door every time she walked past. The front door was only meters from the gate, and let's just say that Frau Holzapfel had the distance and the accuracy. The spitting was due to the fact that she and Rosa Huberman were engaged in some kind of decade-long verbal war. No one knew the origin of this hostility. They'd probably forgotten it themselves. Frau Holzapfel was a wiry woman, and quite obviously spiteful. She'd never married, but had two sons, a few years older than the Huberman offspring. Both were in the army, and both will make cameo appearances by the time we're finished here, I assure you. In the spiteful stakes, I should also say that Frau Holzapfel was thorough with her spitting, too. She never neglected to spuck on the door of number 33 and say, Schweine, each time she walked past. One thing I've noticed about the Germans, they seem very fond of pigs. A small question and its answer. And who do you think was made to clean the spit off the door each night? Yes. You got it. When a woman with an iron fist tells you to get out there and clean spit off the door, you do it, especially when the iron's hot. 
It was all just part of the routine, really. Each night, Liesel would step outside, wipe the door, and watch the sky. Usually it was like spillage, cold and heavy, slippery and grey. But once in a while, some stars had the nerve to rise and float, if only for a few minutes. On those nights, she would stay a little longer and wait. Hello, stars. Waiting for the voice from the kitchen, or till the stars were dragged down again into the waters of the German sky. The Kiss, a Childhood Decision-Maker As with most small towns, Molking was filled with characters. A handful of them lived on Himmel Street. Frau Holzapfel was only one cast member. The others included the likes of these. Rudy Steiner, the boy next door who was obsessed with the black American athlete Jesse Owens. Frau Diller, the staunch Aryan corner shop owner. Tommy Muller, a kid whose chronic ear infections had resulted in several operations, a pink river of skin painted across his face and a tendency to twitch. A man known primarily as Pfificus, whose vulgarity made Rosa Huberman look like a wordsmith and a saint. On the whole, it was a street filled with relatively poor people, despite the apparent rise of Germany's economy under Hitler. Poor sides of town still existed. As mentioned already, the house next door to the Hubermans was rented by a family called Steiner. The Steiners had six children. One of them, the infamous Rudy, would soon become Liesel's best friend, and later her partner and sometime catalyst in crime. She met him on the street. A few days after Liesel's first bath, Mama allowed her out to play with the other kids. On Himmel Street, friendships were made outside, no matter the weather. The children rarely visited each other's homes, for they were small and there was usually very little in them. Also, they conducted their favourite pastime, like professionals, on the street. Soccer. Teams were well set. Garbage cans were used to mark out the goals. Being the new kid in town, Liesel was immediately shoved between one pair of those cans. Tommy Muller was finally set free, despite being the most useless soccer player Himmel Street had ever seen. It all went nicely for a while, until the fateful moment when Rudy Steiner was upended in the snow by a Tommy Muller foul of frustration. What? Tommy shouted, his face twitched in desperation. What did I do? A penalty was awarded by everyone on Rudy's team, and now it was Rudy Steiner against the new kid, Liesel Memminger. He placed the ball on a grubby mound of snow, confident of the usual outcome. After all, Rudy hadn't missed a penalty in 18 shots, even when the opposition made a point of booting Tommy Muller out of goal. No matter whom they replaced him with, Rudy would score. On this occasion, they tried to force Liesel out. As you might imagine, she protested, and Rudy agreed. No, no, he smiled. Let her stay. He was rubbing his hands together. Snow had stopped falling on the filthy street now, and the muddy footprints were gathered between them. Rudy shuffled in, fired the shot, and Liesel dived and somehow deflected it with her elbow. She stood up grinning, but the first thing she saw was a snowball smashing into her face. 
Half of it was mud. It stung like crazy. How'd you like that? The boy grinned, and he ran off in pursuit of the ball. Zaukel, Liesel whispered. The vocabulary of her new home was catching on fast. Some facts about Rudy Steiner. He was eight months older than Liesel and had bony legs, sharp teeth, gangly blue eyes, and hair the color of a lemon. One of six Steiner children, he was permanently hungry. On Himmel Street, he was considered a little crazy. This was on account of an event that was rarely spoken about but widely regarded as the Jesse Owens incident, in which he painted himself charcoal black and ran the hundred meters at the local playing field one night. Insane or not, Rudy was always destined to be Liesel's best friend. A snowball in the face is surely the perfect beginning to a lasting friendship. A few days after Liesel started school, she went along with the Steiners. Rudy's mother, Barbara, made him promise to walk with the new girl, mainly because she'd heard about the snowball. To Rudy's credit, he was happy enough to comply. He was not the junior misogynistic type of boy at all. He liked girls a lot, and he liked Liesel, hence the snowball. In fact, Rudy Steiner was one of those audacious little bastards who actually fancied himself with the ladies. Every childhood seems to have exactly such a juvenile in its midst and mists. He's the boy who refuses to fear the opposite sex, purely because everyone else embraces that particular fear, and he's the type who is unafraid to make a decision. In this case, Rudy had already made up his mind about Liesel Memminger. On the way to school, he tried to point out certain landmarks in the town, or at least he managed to slip it all in, somewhere between telling his younger siblings to shut their faces and the older ones telling him to shut his. His first point of interest was a small window on the second floor of an apartment block. That's where Tommy Muller lives. He realized that Liesel didn't remember him. The Twitcher? When he was five years old, he got lost at the markets on the coldest day of the year. Three hours later, when they found him, he was frozen solid and had an awful earache from the cold. After a while, his ears were all infected inside, and he had three or four operations, and the doctors wrecked his nerves. So now he twitches. Liesel chimed in, and he's bad at soccer. The worst. Next was the corner shop at the end of Himmel Street. Frau Diller's. An important note about Frau Diller. She had one golden rule. Frau Diller was a sharp-edged woman with fat glasses and a nefarious glare. She developed this evil look to discourage the very idea of stealing from her shop, which she occupied with soldier-like posture, a refrigerated voice, and even breath that smelled like Heil Hitler. The shop itself was white and cold and completely bloodless. The small house compressed beside it shivered with a little more severity than the other buildings on Himmel Street. Frau Diller administered this feeling, dishing it out as the only free item from her premises. She lived for her shop, and her shop lived for the Third Reich. Even when rationing started later in the year, she was known to sell certain hard-to-get items under the counter and donate the money to the Nazi party. On the wall behind her usual sitting position was a framed photo of the Führer. If you walked into her shop and didn't say Heil Hitler, 
you wouldn't be served. As they walked by, Rudy drew Liesel's attention to the bulletproof eyes leering from the shop window. Say Heil when you go in there, he warned her stiffly, unless you want to walk a little farther. Even when they were well past the shop, Liesel looked back, and the magnified eyes were still there, fastened to the window. Around the corner, Munich Street, the main road in and out of Molking, was strewn with slosh. As was often the case, a few rows of troops in training came marching past. Their uniforms walked upright, and their black boots further polluted the snow. Their faces were fixed ahead in concentration. Once they'd watched the soldiers disappear, the group of Steiners and Liesel walked past some shop windows in the imposing town hall, which in later years would be chopped off at the knees and buried. A few of the shops were abandoned and still labelled with yellow stars and anti-Jewish slurs. Farther down, the church aimed itself at the sky, its rooftop a study of collaborated tiles. The street, overall, was a lengthy tube of grey, a corridor of dampness, people stooped in the cold, and the splashed sound of watery footsteps. At one stage, Rudy rushed ahead, dragging Liesel with him. He knocked on the window of a tailor's shop. Had she been able to read the sign, she would have noticed that it belonged to Rudy's father. The shop was not yet open, but inside, a man was preparing articles of clothing behind the counter. He looked up and waved. My papa, Rudy informed her, and they were soon among a crowd of various sized Steiners, each waving or blowing kisses at their father, or simply standing and nodding hello in the case of the oldest ones, then moving on toward the final landmark before school. The last stop. The Road of Yellow Stars. It was a place nobody wanted to stay and look at, but almost everyone did. Shaped like a long, broken arm, the road contained several houses with lacerated windows and bruised walls. The Star of David was painted on their doors. Those houses were almost like lepers. At the very least, they were infected sores on the injured German terrain. Schillerstrasse, Rudy said, the road of yellow stars. At the bottom, some people were moving around. The drizzle made them look like ghosts not humans, but shapes, moving about beneath the lead-colored clouds. Come on, you two, Kurt, the oldest of the Steiner children, called back, and Rudy and Liesel walked quickly toward him. At school, Rudy made a special point of seeking Liesel out during the breaks. He didn't care that others made noises about the new girl's stupidity. He was there for her at the beginning, and he would be there later on, when Liesel's frustration boiled over but he wouldn't do it for free. The only thing worse than a boy who hates you, a boy who loves you. In late April, when they'd returned from school for the day, Rudy and Liesel waited on Himmel Street for the usual game of soccer. They were slightly early, and no other kids had turned up yet. The one person they saw was the gutter-mouthed Pfificus. Look there, Rudy pointed. A portrait of Pificus. He was a delicate frame. He was white hair. He was a black raincoat, brown pants, decomposing shoes, and a mouth. And what a mouth it was. Hey, Pificus! 
As the distant figure turned, Rudy started whistling. The old man simultaneously straightened and proceeded to swear with a ferocity that can only be described as a talent. No one seemed to know the real name that belonged to him, or at least if they did, they never used it. He was only called Pfificus because you give that name to someone who likes to whistle, which Pfificus most definitely did. He was constantly whistling a tune called the Radetzky March, and all the kids in town would call out to him and duplicate that tune. At that precise moment, Pfificus would abandon his usual walking style, bent forward, taking large, lanky steps, arms behind his raincoated back, and erect himself to deliver abuse. It was then that any impression of serenity was violently interrupted, for his voice was brimming with rage. On this occasion, Liesel followed Rudy's taunt almost as a reflex action. Fificus, she echoed, quickly adopting the appropriate cruelty that childhood seems to require. Her whistling was awful, but there was no time to perfect it. He chased them, calling out. It started with Gescheißen and deteriorated rapidly from there. At first, he leveled his abuse only at the boy, but soon enough, it was Liesel's turn. You little slut, he roared at her. The words clobbered her in the back. I've never seen you before. Fancy calling a ten-year-old girl a slut. That was Pfificus. It was widely agreed that he and Frau Holzapfel would have made a lovely couple. Get back here! were the last words Liesel and Rudy heard as they continued running. They ran until they were on Munich Street. Come on, Rudy said once they'd recovered their breath. Just down here, little. He took her to Hubert Oval, the scene of the Jesse Owens incident, where they stood, hands in pockets. The track was stretched out in front of them. Only one thing could happen. Rudy started it. Hundred meters, he goaded her. I bet you can't beat me. Liesel wasn't taking any of that. I bet you I can. What you bet, you little Zaumensch? Have you got any money? Of course not. Do you? No. But Rudy had an idea. It was the lover boy coming out of him. If I beat you, I get to kiss you. He crouched down and began rolling up his trousers. Liesel was alarmed, to put it mildly. What do you want to kiss me for? I'm filthy. So am I. Rudy clearly saw no reason why a bit of filth should get in the way of things. It had been a while between baths for both of them. She thought about it while examining the weedy legs of her opposition. They were about equal with her own. There's no way he can beat me, she thought. She nodded seriously. This was business. You can kiss me if you win, but if I win, I get out of Bengali at soccer. Rudy considered it. Fair enough and they shook on it. All was dark-skied and hazy, and small chips of rain were starting to fall. The track was muddier than it looked. Both competitors were set. Rudy threw a rock in the air as the starting pistol. When it hit the ground, they could start running. I can't even see the finish line, Liesel complained. And I can? The rock wedged itself into the earth. They ran next to each other, elbowing and trying to get in front. The slippery ground slurped at their feet and brought them down perhaps twenty meters from the end. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, yelped Rudy. I'm covered in shit. 
It's not shit, Liesel corrected him. It's mud, although she had her doubts. They'd slid another five meters toward the finish. Do we call it a draw, then? Rudy looked over all sharp teeth and gangly blue eyes. Half his face was painted with mud. If it's a draw, do I still get my kiss? Not in a million years. Liesel stood up and flicked some mud off her jacket. I'll get you out of goalie. Stick your goalie. As they walked back to Himmel Street, Rudy forewarned her. One day, Liesel, he said, you'll be dying to kiss me. But Liesel knew. She vowed. As long as both she and Rudy Steiner lived, she would never kiss that miserable, filthy Zaukerl, especially not this day. There were more important matters to attend to. She looked down at her suit of mud and stated the obvious. She's going to kill me. She, of course, was Rosa Huberman, also known as Mama, and she very nearly did kill her. The word Zaumensch featured heavily in the administration of punishment. She made mincemeat out of her.